Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Israel's military and security establishment have emerged as some of the country's most outspoken advocates for a viable two-state solution and critics of perpetual occupation and creeping annexation. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by one of Israel's most accomplished former security officials. Admiral Ami Ayalon is a former Flotilla 13, or Israeli Navy SEAL, commando, commander of the Israeli Navy, director of the Shin Bet, Israel's internal security agency, a cabinet minister, former member of Knesset, and a recipient of the Medal of Valor, Israel's highest military decoration. Alongside the Palestinian intellectual Sari Nusaiba, he established the People's Voice Peace Initiative in 2002. He is a member of Commanders for Israel Security, chairman of the executive committee of the Haifa Research Center for Maritime and Strategy, and chairman of Akim Israel, the National Association for Children and Adults with Intellectual Disabilities. He organized and was featured in the Academy Award-nominated documentary, The Gatekeepers. Finally, Ami is also the author of Friendly Fire, a memoir that tracks the story of the state of Israel through the lens of Ami's own life experience. Friendly Fire will be out from Steerforth Press in September, but I had the opportunity to read an advanced copy, which we'll discuss today. So, Ami, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Ami, to get into this, can you tell us a little bit more about this forthcoming book, Friendly Fire? What got you to write it, and where does the title come from? Well, first of all, uh, what was the reason to write uh, a memoir? Um, many people, uh, you know, uh, told me uh, many years that I should write uh, some of the stories because I participated in too many battles, too many wars. I lost too many friends. So uh, and people thought that uh, it might be a good story. And I didn't think so. Uh, I think the first time when I, when I realized that probably I should, uh, it was um, after the Second Intifada broke up. Um, hundreds of people, uh, both the, uh, hundreds of people, died in our streets, and and I was, I was angry more than any other feeling. I was angry because um, for us in the Shinbet, I was not in the Shinbet already. Uh, I retired uh, several months earlier, uh, but it was clear that we are going to face a wave of violence popular uprising, what we call Intifada. And, uh, and it was written in all our papers, in all our uh, analysis. And, and nobody, nobody was listening. I, I remember that I met uh, cabinet ministers, uh, the prime minister. I even approached um, the press uh, in order to try to, uh, to send a message to the public debate. And, uh, and I couldn't. And, uh, and I think that this was the first time when I felt that I have something to say. Uh, for me, it was written on all the walls, in English, in Hebrew, in Arabic, and nobody was ready to read it. So it was the first time when I uh, decided that probably, probably one day I will write my book or I will tell uh, my story, the way I see the reality trying to find for myself, by the way, uh, but probably to explain to, to many Israelis, uh, most of them, or many of them are my friends, uh, many of them are, uh, you know, oppose my, my views, and I have to explain myself, and I have to explain to them why I see a different reality than most Israelis. And finally, I think that um, it was several months after the beginning of the breakup of the Intifada, we met uh, some Israelis, a few Israelis, a few Palestinians in London, and um, I was not in any official position, so uh, none of us, I think, was in official position. So um, the discussion was uh, quite open, and, and we tried to understand what can be done in order to, uh, I don't know, to take our both people um, to, uh, to, a better, to a better future. And uh, in, in one of the coffee breaks, uh, I, I discussed something and I prepared myself a cup of coffee. And um, a friend of mine, a Palestinian friend, Yad Saradi, a psychiatrist, um, he, he died several years ago. 
It was in London, uh, 2001. And uh, he tells me, Ami, finally, after so many years, uh, we are achieving victory. And, and I, I was furious. You know, during, usually I, I used to, uh, to give a, a very quick answer. And um, all what I wanted to say was go to hell. Because, you know, uh, we, lost, uh, we lost dozens and they lost hundreds. And I told him, uh, uh, what do you mean? You, you, you are losing hundreds of people, your people, and you are going to lose your dream for an independent Palestine. And he said, Ami, I, I'm surprised. After so many years, you don't understand us. Victory for us uh, is to see you suffer. This is all what we want. And, uh, and then uh, I remember I, I came back to the to the table, uh, to the next debate, and I asked the, the, the moderator, uh, Professor Mary Kildor, uh, to change the schedule and to try to, uh, to define what is victory in the wars of, uh, uh, of the 21th century, at least between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, and, and then, you know, uh, we understood that uh, discussions became furious, almost violent. Uh, we did not reach any conclusion. But on, the, on, my, on my flight back, um, I was thinking about it and, and came to my mind that finally, in the end of the day, we are not so different. When people are dying in our streets, all what we want is to see them suffer. A kind of revenge. And we are losing the essence of victory, which is to create a better political, a better political reality. And I think in retrospect that this was the moment that I was uh, probably, I thought that, well, one day I will, I will write my, uh, my story. And the title, Friendly Fire. I, I started, you know, I, I, uh, several attempts. I had several attempts uh, in Israel, in Hebrew. And, and it didn't work because uh, I, I'm, I'm not a writer. I, uh, I have my story, uh, but I, I needed someone to write my story. So I was looking, and all, all the people in Israel whom I met, uh, they, they almost pushed me more and more um, to, uh, to the operations, to the battles, face-to-face, uh, -face, um and, uh, and I said, but this is not my message. Of course, I will have to say something about it because one day or finally people will, will have to read it. And without some, I don't know, uh, personal adventures, uh, nobody will read it. I, I'm not a philosopher. So, but I, I, um, I didn't like the approach. I met someone who became a very good friend, uh, David Anthony. I read uh, the book that he wrote with a, a Palestinian friend of mine, Professor Saino Seiba. And finally, um, I, I got a friend, a, a great friend, and, and he came with, with the idea of the title. Um, I liked it the moment that he uh, mentioned it, but uh, the, I mean, the idea was, was his. And in a way, uh, it is a kind of uh, reflection. We can influence, we can shape our future. Israel is, um, is a regional power um, from economic security, um, political uh, parameters. Uh, we are a regional superpower. We, even if we cannot control, we can shape, we can influence on our future. And this is, and if, and if uh, we are going backward, if we are losing the whole essence of victory, if we are choosing a road that brings us to the end of Zionism, the way we understand the essence of Zionism, which is an Israeli state, which is a Jewish, a democratic, along the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and and we, we are not choosing this way. So if we are, if we are not choosing this way, um, we can blame only ourselves. Um, 
we are not alone in this equation. But in a way, uh, this is what I'm trying to say when I say friendly fire. And often choosing the title is the hardest part. Ami, I want to address a theme that kept recurring in the book, which was this idea of narrative and the upbringing that you got on the kibbutz and the Zionist mythos that you were raised with, the emphasis on figures like the Maccabees, the Hasmonean kings, Josephus and Bar Kokhba, and so on and so forth. Um, because you, you just spoke about the difference in the way people see things. What effect do you think this perspective has on, on your own story and also on the Israeli public's view on the Arab-Israeli conflict and now the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, it's too early and uh, we shall have to see. Um, and uh, what I'm doing in the book, I'm, uh, I'm telling a story. I'm telling uh, to the reader my story. My story is, is the way I see it, uh, is a kind of an Israeli story. Um, and uh, because I was born um, 75 years ago in the Jordan Valley, and uh, I, I tell the story of my parents who came to Israel, uh, my father, illegal immigrant, and my mother, as a child who studied in Jerusalem, and, and their concept of Zionism was, was very simple. Um, it was based on the concept of security and settlements. Uh, the idea was that um, the land of Israel is ours, um, the Jewish people is in a great danger. It was during the 30s. Um, and uh, we, the only way to save the Jewish people is to create a Jewish state in the land of Israel. And it will be based or it will be uh, built uh, wherever in the state of or in the land of Israel uh, in which we can build a settlement, work the land, and defend ourselves. And in my case, uh, it was the Jordan Valley. Uh, the idea was to shape the, the future border. In the end of my childhood, uh, I, I, I joined the Navy and the Special Forces, uh, the Navy SEALs, and, um, and the rest is history, at least from the military point. The idea, by the way, was to serve for three and four years, and, uh, but every, every time uh, we faced another war, and, um, and I came to believe that um, I, I do not really have a choice after the Six-Day War, um, I was an officer already, and uh, my friends from my kibbutz, uh, they went uh, to the Golan Heights, um, to Sinai, and to the Jordan Valley to, uh, to build more settlements, because this was the, the whole essence of Zionism, settlements and security. So they went to build more settlements, um, and I stayed uh, in security in the Navy. And only during the First Intifada, I realized uh, it was uh, a, a very unique moment. Um, I, uh, I was the deputy commander of the Navy, and uh, I had to, uh, to meet uh, Palestinian uh, fishermen in Gaza. And on my way, I had to cross uh, a, refugee, a refugee camp. Um, and um, and I, um, I, I was attacked. I was attacked uh, by, by women and youngsters uh, in, uh, in Shati refugee camp, which is um, uh, not, not far from, from the beach. And I saw the eyes uh, of the Palestinian youngster who uh, was thrown a, a huge, uh, it was a rock, it was not a stone that almost killed me, but, and I couldn't shoot, I couldn't kill him because he was not armed. Uh, at least uh, he did not have any weapon. Well, I don't know if I saw it or I felt it, but there was a hatred in his eyes. And, and the whole, you know, uh, the whole narrative of uh, we, are li we are liberated, uh, we liberated the land of Israel, uh, we liberated the places, um, that, you know, um, Israel um, was created thousands of years ago. And uh, because this was, this was my narrative. And this was the moment that I understood that I had to choose. I have to choose uh, whether uh, to control the land um, and to control the places. But I understood that in all these cities, there are 
millions of people. The only way for us uh, to see Israel as a Jewish democratic state on the condition that we will be majority, this was the moment that I understood that our eastern border um, should be based on demography. Our eastern border uh, should keep our identity as a Jewish democratic state. And, um, and we have to give up on the dream of greater Israel because we have to choose between two dreams of my parents. One dream is the greater Israel and to create the state of Israel all over the land of Israel. And the other dream is to create a just society which is based on, on justice, Equality, which means that I cannot control another people. I cannot occupy another people. And in retrospect, I think that uh, this was a moment in which I understood that the narrative that brought us uh, to create the state of Israel is bringing us uh, to a dead end. Dead end meaning if we shall not give up on some portion of the land of Israel. Um, Israel uh, will lose its identity. I think that several, several years later, um, after the assassination of Rabin, um, Shimon Peres uh, asked me to, uh, to replace uh, the director of the Shin Bet, who uh, uh, who asked to, uh, to leave his position after the assassination. And um, I, I didn't think that uh, I can refuse. You are talking about moving into the Shin Bet. Uh, you became the first director of that agency not to have had a career in its ranks. You came up through the ranks of the Navy. Every other previous director had come up through the Shin Bet. How did serving in the Shin Bet inform your perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And how did your previous perspective, as someone coming in from outside of that agency, shape your own work with Shin Bet? Uh, in a way, um, the only way it was, the, 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 the Shin Bet was in, in a huge crisis uh, after assassination of uh, our prime minister uh, and, um, and the resignation of uh, the former director and um, and a wave of violence. Um, we um, we we I, I mentioned uh, some some of some of the events of suicide bomber uh, bombers in in, in buses. Uh, we lost um, 59 people and, and more than 200 wounded in our streets. Um, and it, it was it was very difficult time. And the only way to uh, to try to uh, to shape or to reconstruct the organization uh, was uh, to tell the truth. Uh, and the truth is that I know nothing about the Shin Bet uh, on one hand, and on the other hand, um, I'm responsible. So uh, we have to do it together. And, um, and, and my, my responsibility is to ask the right questions. And there is only one answer that I do not want to hear. Uh, this is the way we did it always. Because this is the way we did it always, and what we did brought us to a dead end. So in a way, it's a long story, but I think that this was my approach to deal with being a foreigner or someone who knows almost nothing um, when it comes to uh, internal security and, and this kind of intelligence. But what I learned, uh, I learned, I think, mainly two lessons uh, that influence uh, the way I see the reality, um, security and political reality in Israel and in the region. First of all, um, I'm sure, I'm sure that my audience, uh, they, they know Robert McNamara, uh, American defense minister during uh, Vietnam. 
uh, but he published in 2003 a, a movie, The Fog of War. And he is trying to tell the Americans uh, the 11 lessons that he learned from the Vietnam War. Now, the first lesson is empathize with the enemy. In a way, uh, what I learned in the Shin Bet uh, is two lessons. I learned something very simple, that my enemy is not a target. Uh, he's a human being. Meaning, uh, during 33 or 34 years in, my, in, in the Navy, uh, which is a military organization, uh, even when we kill our enemies, we know nothing about them. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about their families, children, wives, parents. We don't need it. We just have to know that they are enemies, that they are soldiers or combatants. And in a way, the reality is very simple. We are the good guys, they are the bad guys, and we have to kill the bad guys in order to defend the good guys. In the Shin Bet, it's totally different. In the Shin Bet, you have to know everything about every, each enemy. You have to know his name. You know, Muslims usually have four names. You have to know everything about his mother, his father, his children, with whom he prays in the mosque, who are their friends. Because otherwise you, do, otherwise, you don't understand him. You don't understand his motives. You cannot interrogate him. You cannot recruit him as an agent. You cannot fight against him. And once you know everything about him, he is becoming a human being. By the way, people ask me after my participation in, in the movie. You're speaking about your participation in The Gatekeepers. Okay, in Gatekeepers. And uh, they, they ask me, how come the six directors of the Shin Bet, they speak a different language? They see Palestinians as people, not as most people in Israel. And this is my explanation. We understand that our enemies are not targets. They are human beings. And, and the second lesson, which is not less important, if we want security, we have to make sure that our enemy will have hope. So the equation is security for us, hope for them. This is a good point to jump into another issue that came up several times in the book, which was the cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority security forces. You uh, reflected at several points on your relationships with the heads of the Palestinian security forces. At one point, you even quote the West Bank security chief, Jibril Rajoub, as saying, we're not your collaborators. He explains that the Palestinian Authority clamps down on Hamas and the other radical groups in hopes of achieving statehood. You were just speaking about hope and not for Israel's benefit. Now that annexation is on the table and security coordination has been suspended between Israel and the Palestinian Authority just in the last couple of months, what can be done to restore this relationship and to restore the hope that undergirds it? I believe that the, the only way to restore hope, by the way, um, for us Israelis, as much as for the Palestinians, uh, is to come up with a new political initiative. Um, and since we are we are the stronger side in this equation or in this conflict, and uh, and we do care about our future, uh, we are not giving any present to the Palestinians by creating two states for two people. Um, we we just have to reassure uh, the identity of the state of Israel as a Jewish democratic state. So. It is for us to come up with a new initiative that should be based on four principles. First of all, uh, it should describe um, in a clear way uh, the future parameters. So we have to announce that the future parameters will be based on Security Council Resolutions 242338 and the Arab Peace Initiative, which is 
quite or this was quite acceptable during the 90s uh, by between 70 to 80 percent of Israelis and Palestinians. Second, in order not to wait or not to make sure that Hamas uh, will destroy everything the way they did during the 90s, we have to say that East, East on the security fence, which is major settlements are built on the Israeli side of the security fence, but east of the secure of the security fence, uh, we shall not claim we do not have aspiration of political sovereignty. And um, and we shall negotiate on the exact route of the border, which will be by exchanging territories along the lines of all the negotiations that we had during the 90s. As the third principle is we shall have to pass the law of bringing back settlers to compensate. We shall have to bring back settlers uh, who build their homes in places that will not be part of Israel, and at least those who are ready to come back. Uh, by the way, according to our polls, uh, about 30% of the more than 100,000 people who are sitting in places that will not be under Israel sovereignty, um, 30% of them are, are ready to come back if it will be a government decision and they will be compensated. And four, the IDF will stay in order to maintain security and to make sure that we shall not repeat the mistake that we did in Gaza, in which we created vacuum that enabled Hamas to take over. Now, in a way, these are the four principles. We are not paying anything when it comes to security because the IDF will stay, and, but we are sending a message to three audiences. First of all, to the settlers. We send them, all our government. They were our pioneers. And we send them in a way without saying it. We gave them the notion that they will shape the future borders of Israel. Because this was the narrative that brought us to send them. This was the narrative that brought us to create the state of Israel. When we speak to the when we speak to the to the settlers, we are sending a message to three audiences. First of all, the settlers, whom we sent as pioneers to build settlements in the West Bank. In a way, all our governments, labor governments and the good governments. We promise them that they will shape the future borders of the state of Israel. And, um, and now we come to them and we are telling them, okay, uh, come back home. The only way to do it is to tell them, you won this war for us. Because finally, after so many wars and so many people whom we lost, all the Arab states, and even Palestinians recognize the state of Israel along the lines of 67 with exchange of territories, and they are even ready to negotiate the right of return. So uh, we have to bring them back as victorious. They won this war for us. The second audience are the Palestinians. We are not going to wait. If you are ready to negotiate, let's negotiate. If not, we are going to create a reality of two states. If you will negotiate, we shall find a way to agree on the route of the border. If you will not come to negotiate, in 10, 20, or 30 years, the international community will declare the route of the fence, security fence, as our eastern border. And Israel will be a Jewish democratic state 
because we will be majority in Israel uh, along the borders that will be recognized by the international community. And to the international community, it will be the first time that we are really honest. We are honest. We are not blaming anybody. Until now, the whole discussion between us and Palestinians was in, in the language of, of blame. We blamed them. They blamed us. We are not blaming you. We are taking our future in our hands. We can create a reality of two states, and we believe that it is your interest as ours. We are, not, we are not giving you any present. If you want to create a Palestinian state, come to negotiate. I believe that this is a realistic concept. And I believe, by the way, that this is the only way for us to choose the right way in order to see Israel or the future of Israel secure, Jewish, and democratic state. I want to connect that to the work that you did with your initiative, The People's Voice, that you launched with Sari Nusaiba. As part of that proposal, you called for a single agreement between Israelis and Palestinians to reach a two-state solution as opposed to many interim steps. That differs from where a lot of supporters of two states stand. And I also want to know how you reconcile that position with this, this call also to take these steps to first declare that there won't be any building or Israeli sovereignty east of the security barrier um, and then build towards two states. Where do those two positions lie? My initiative with Sari, uh, who became a very good friend, by the way, um, was based on the idea. Uh, it was not a plan. Uh, it was not even a political initiative. It was just a concept that was based on the idea that if we shall create or we shall define the parameters of the future agreement, it will be much easier to go there. You have to understand that Oslo, in Oslo, there were no parameters to the final agreement. The idea, the concept of Oslo was based on um, constructive ambiguity, they called it. Uh, when Shimon Peres was asked about it, he said, we, we cannot define the parameters because if we shall define the parameters, we have to touch the most sensitive nerves of our identity, of our existence in the region. Settlements, settlers, security, holy places, but it will, it, 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 it will be broken the moment it, it is too painful for us to discuss it during the early 90s. Uh, we, we believed, uh, by the way, we came with our initiative in 2002, and we said, well, uh, after uh, almost 10 years of negotiations, and, um, and some level of cooperation. And we knew that majority on both states, at that time, the majority on both states, really wanted a better future based on these parameters. Because whatever we shall try to blame, whatever, whatever we shall say on Oslo, um, during the negotiations, the parameters became clear, but nobody wrote it because this was the approach. It was a gradual process. So what we tried to do is to write the parameters that were discussed, by the way, in all the negotiations by the politicians. Uh, on one page, six parameters. It was not a plan. We said, these are the parameters. This is the future. It's a great future. Forget about the past. Forget about the present. Jump 40 years ahead and try to imagine. So it was based on a very simple and, I'm, and a very simple idea that if people 
believe that they are going to a better place, they will be able to suffer and to pay almost every price for themselves or for their children. Um, well, um, it didn't work. It didn't work, uh, although um, I know that we influenced uh, with other organizations and states uh, on the decision of Sharon um, to, uh, to pull out of Gaza, but again, this was not quite the intention, uh, and we, we don't know uh, what was in Sharon's head uh, because uh, he did not survive. So um, uh, when, when you try to compare it to what I'm, what, what I'm, what I'm saying in my book, um, it was a very naive concept. By the way, I believe that the parameters uh, are still the parameters. Uh, all what I would add now is that uh, we shall have to negotiate on all the settlers uh, the future of the settlers who refuse to come, um, even uh, or who refuse to uproot themselves or to come back to the state of Israel, um, I, I, I will demand, and I know that Palestinians uh, were ready in the past and probably will be ready to do it today, um, to negotiate on, uh, on the status and the number uh, of the settlers who will stay in Palestine as citizens or in any other status that will be decided. Um, what I learned um, during the last, I don't know, 10 years, that uh, when we said forget about the past, um, it was a mistake. It was a mistake because um, I found out uh, something that probably uh, wiser people knew already, that the past uh, is shaping our influence or influence on what we do or the way we understand the reality. And, um, and the narrative that, uh, of my parents uh, that, that the land is ours, and um, and if it is ours, uh, we can build settlements, um, shape our behavior more than our dreams of the future. So um, I'm trying to uh, to deal or to discuss it in my book, following ideas of Professor Chaim Gans. He's a philosopher, uh, was, uh, was teaching in the in Tel Aviv University. And in a way, uh, it is clear to me that uh, in order to reshape Zionism, which is, I don't know, uh, very ambitious, we have to not only to describe a very clear future, uh, but to rewrite our past. Towards the end of Friendly Fire, you looked back at that old Zionist mythos, what we spoke about before, the stories that you were raised with from the Bible or from ancient Jewish history, and you described this call for a new national narrative for Israel. So what about the story that you were raised with do you think needs to change, and why, and how would you change it? I said something about the narrative of my parents. Uh, the narrative of my parents, or what I, what I call the Zionist, Zionist concept of my parents was based on the idea that this is ours and, um, and, and we shall do everything in order to protect or to create a better future for the Jewish people. Uh, yes, this is ours, but it is not only ours. Um, and um, if we go back to the Declaration of Independence, we created the state of Israel uh, based on two main ideas. Yes, we did it within the land of Israel, because this is the place in which the Jewish people was born, and this is the only place in which we can feel 
that we are part of this land and we can live along with our culture, language, and, 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 and history. But the other principle was a self-determination. Uh, we are people, uh, and since we are people, uh, according to the international law, we have the right to create a state of our, ourselves, of our own, and, uh, and to live um, along our, our cultural language, etc. So uh, we don't have to change our declaration of independence, but we have to remind ourselves that in the Declaration of Independence, Declaration of Independence based on these two principles. And the other principle is that there is a Palestinian people. So this land is ours, but it is not only ours. If we want to see Israel as a Jewish state, we have to understand that on the other side of the border, on the same land, on the other side of the border, there will be a Palestinian state. Israel, until now, did not recognize Palestine as a state. By the way, Palestinians recognized Israel in their Declaration of Independence in 1988. We did not recognize Palestine. So what we have to change is to accept the idea that this land is ours, but it is not only ours. It was very easy for me to understand it when I met Sari, because once I remember he asked me, tell me something about your history. And I spoke about my, my father who came during the British mandate, illegal immigrants. He said, no, 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 what, what is your family tree? And I told him, I don't have a family tree. All my grandparents were assassinated during the Holocaust. I know nothing about my past. My parents erased 2,000 years of Jewish history. And they revived the history of the heroes, Bar Kokhba, Samson, who lived in Israel before the diaspora. And they did not mention the Mishnah, the Talmud. They erased 2000. They had to do it in order to create the state of Israel. In a way, in order to change the narrative, we have to come back and to understand that Palestinians have the right to create the state of their own. And the meaning is that what we are telling to ourselves, even on our wars, the war of independence was a just war. It was a war in which we defended ourselves, we accepted the UN resolution, partition plan, and we have been attacked. So the war of independence was a just war. This war in 67 and even in 73 were just wars because we have been attacked. But somewhere between the 70s and no later than 2002. We want this war. We want this war because Egypt, Jordan, and in 2002, all the Arab world accepted Israel along the lines of 67. By the way, later, they added a change of territories, and later they even added the idea that the Palestinian right of return will be negotiated. It is not a demand. It will be negotiated between Palestinians and Israelis. 
This is victory. Victory is not to see your enemy suffer. Victory is not to kill your enemy. Victory is to create a better reality. And we have to understand that the war that we are fighting today is not a just war. Because in most aspects, and I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking about battles, I'm not speaking about cases in which we have to defend ourselves. I'm speaking about our ongoing war in order to expand our eastern border by building more settlements, because this is not a just war in international parameters. But most important, if we shall win this war and our border will be on the, on the Jordan, this is the end of Zionism. Israel will not be a Zionist state as we understand now the concept of Zionism, which is Jewish, democratic, based on the principles of our Declaration of Independence. Because if we are not majority, we do not have the right, we do not have the moral right, and we do not have the power to dictate the language, the culture, and the story that we are telling our children at schools. I want to tell my story to my children and my grandchildren that there are more than one narrative. I don't want to tell my children the story of the narrative. It is legitimate to mention it, but for me, and I'll say it again and again, the war of independence was a just war. And we should be proud of the way we created our state. So uh, this is in a nutshell. It's, uh, it's a huge challenge, by the way. It's a huge challenge because the last time when a society changed past, present, and future was the, the Zionist revolution. And in a way, in a way, in order to change course and to make sure that Israel will not lose its identity, yes, we have to redefine our past and to change the course of our behavior in the present and in the future. It's not easy. I'm optimistic not because I was born naive or not because I'm optimistic by nature. I'm optimistic only because I believe that it is in our hands. By the way, if I learned something from my father and my mother, uh, the whole Zionist revolution is the result of optimism and free choice. When Herzl told us many, many, many years ago that if we shall dream it, it will. So uh, in a way, this is what he told us. We shape our future. We are not doomed. Not all the world is against us every day or all the time. Ami, before we close, I want to address one last point in your book, which was your perspective on seemingly opposing poles in Israeli society. You devote a, a, a whole chapter in your book, really, talking about um, why you spoke out and you relate it back to uh, the organization Breaking the Silence, the ex-soldiers organization, where they speak out about what they have experienced serving in the occupied territories. And you speak pretty highly of their work, but at the same time, you describe them as, uh, I think, the most hated NGO in Israel is, is the words that you use or something along those lines. Why do you think that this outlook that you espouse isn't more widespread in Israel? And why do you see things that way? 
Well, I, I, I find it very, very easy to, uh, to explain my behavior, but I'm warning myself. You know, I, I used to say that psychology department in my family belongs to my wife, and, and you, uh, you are taking me to, uh, uh, to psychology. But okay, uh, my view is, is very simple. I oppose occupation. Uh, so I ask myself uh, a very easy question. Uh, if I oppose occupation, uh, so what should I say to a soldier, youngster, who is going to the military? If I'm against it, why I'm sending him to maintain the occupation? I'm totally against people who refuse to join the military. I think that this is the red line that in democracy, we are not allowed. So if I am against occupation and I demand him to join the military, I demand him to join the military and not to serve in the headquarters in Tel Aviv. He joined the, 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 the front line. He's going to the battle unit. He sees occupation every day. He enters to houses. He sees the children, the elders, the women every night. I think that he is a great Zionist because he understands that the only way to hope that we shall see the end of it, is to tell us exactly what we see. Uh, this is something that Israelis hate to hear because we have a great image of ourselves, a great democracy, we are great guys, but suddenly you hear the stories of what we are doing in the territories every night. And, uh, and this is not something that people like to hear in Israel. So they hate the messenger. They hate the people who tell them the story. Especially in units, they come and tell what they did or what their friends did. And, you know, he's, they are the whistleblowers. I used to say to the Israelis, uh, we should be proud of them. But I have to add something else. What did I do as a former director of the Shinbet when I, with all my five friends, participated in gatekeepers? We broke the silence. We did exactly what they did. So every time, every time when people tell me, okay, uh, why did you do it? I said, I did not have any other choice. It's hypocrisy. All my friends and myself, we did the same. So um, my explanation is to why they are so hated, because they are the messengers who tell us in very simple words, what is the daily price that we are paying in order to maintain the occupation, and we hate the stories. That makes sense, and again, especially bringing it back to the gatekeepers um, and, and the stories that you shared with your Shinbet colleagues, bringing it around to the other side of Israeli politics. A lot of people who share your beliefs, who are opposed to perpetual occupation, who are opposed to annexation, who support a two-state solution, a lot of these people uh, would be inclined to blame the Jewish settler community for the direction that Israel is going, or at least place the bulk of the blame at their feet. Um, you, I think, distinguish yourself in the book in sharing a great deal of empathy for the settler community and the settler movement and even sitting down to speak with some pretty radical figures like Rabbi Yitzhak Shapira, who is the 
the author of the King's Torah. Rabbi Shapira's book is, is a book that calls for uh, sanctioning the murder of non-Jews. And you even draw a connection between the settlers who live in the occupied territories today and your generation and your parents' generation of kibbutzniks before 1967. So can you elaborate on your view of the settlers in, in Israeli society? Look, there are, um, there are a variety uh, of uh, settlers. You know, they, are, they are not... Settlers are not the same, but uh, but the idea of settlements. Uh, look, uh, I mentioned it uh, even with, with with you several minutes ago. Um, after '67, um, my friends from my kibbutz, from my school in the Jordan Valley, they went to create settlements in the West Bank in the Jordan Valley and in Sinai, because this was a narrative. We did not understand, by the way, I, I we, you know, I, I, you, you know the name Naomi Shemel. Uh, she, she, she was a great, a great poet. Anyhow, so I, I'm, I'm saying it because I stayed in the Navy and this is the only reason why I did not become a settler. We believed that this is our way to create the state of Israel. I cannot hate them. Many of them grew with me in, in the same kibbutz, in the same school, in the same movement. So um, all our government, it is, it is not a creation or ideology of, of, of the Likud or the right or religious ideology. It was created by my parents. What happened to me is that I understood during the first intifada that this narrative, this concept of Zionism that created the state of Israel by the generation of our parents bring us to a dead end. And this is why we have to change narrative. I don't know if it ever happened in history. I'm not a historian. But I know that we have to change our narrative because the narrative that created the state of Israel and settlers were pioneers is narrative that today will bring us to a dead end. It will bring the end of Zionism, the way we understand Zionism. So I cannot hate them. I cannot see them as enemies. Many of them are my personal friends. And I'm trying every time when I meet them, I'm trying to tell them that we send them. They are our people, and they want this war. The recognition of the Arab world was won in a way by them creating the threat to Palestinians that there will be no Palestinian state. And this was not the idea, but history will tell that I'm right. So. Um, I, I empathize with them. I, I know many of them. They are my friends. I cannot see them as enemies. And by the way, and, and, and by the way, they will pay. You know, every time when we are trying to create a change, we have to be very careful. And first, we have to understand who will pay the price. In this case, they will pay the price. They will pay the price because we send them, and now we tell them, okay, uh, some people will say, okay, it was a mistake, but others will say, no, you won the war. You won the war, and this is why we have to bring them back. It's an important thing to be thinking about, especially uh, now upon the 15th anniversary of the Gaza disengagement, 
But all important insights. And Ami, thank you for joining us and sharing your expertise and your experience. Um, you know, there's so much more that we could talk about, but I don't want to spoil the whole book for our listeners. I want people to pick this up when it's out. And uh, there's a lot more in there uh, that's uh, really, again, valuable insight. So again, thank you, Ami. Thank you very much. For our listeners, if you would like to order Ami's memoir, Friendly Fire, you can purchase it on the publisher's website. That's www.steerforth.com. And the book will be out in September, so just a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod. <laughs>